And that's quite the damning view of our current social institutions. Does humanity need religion? That's what I want to tackle today in light of Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. I will talk about his concept of the monomyth. And towards the end, I want to relate these ideas to some modern thinkers who have wrestled with the question of religion and God in modern times, which looks upon religion suspiciously. Some might be familiar with Joseph Campbell and his book, The Hero's Journey, as it is said to have inspired George Lucas, or at least that Joseph Campbell influenced George Lucas in his writing of Star Wars, namely in him attempting to write a universal story based upon these demarcations in the hero's life that is said to revitalize society and such. In fact, for those who are interested, Lucas early on was a student of anthropology and sociology at a community college, I believe. There are some very interesting interviews one can find online of him discussing some of the underlying ideas in Star Wars and film in general, storytelling in general, that reveal that he has a certain academic side to him. He was not out just to make blockbuster films, but sort of stumbled upon it through failure, actually. But I don't want to get into a long-winded discussion on George Lucas's struggles to make the Star Wars franchise. That has been well-documented and can be told much better by others or himself, but it does relate to Joseph Campbell and his book, The Hero's Journey, which we are going to discuss. Campbell starts out his book with a discussion of what he names the monomyth, and he goes on to attempt to lay out an idea of the monomyth, primarily through anecdote, which I also have some issues with to be discussed later, but he wants to connect mythology and the human psyche to some unifying idea underlying all religiosity, psychoanalysis, and the human unconscious. He even states in the preface that he wants to uncover the figures and mythology underlying religion. He says to uncover the truths disguised under these symbols and figures and mythology. So already we get a hint of what he is suggesting, that these religious myths lies a deeper truth, and we need the anthropologists to uncover these truths, to lay them bare, to greater understand who we are as human beings. And I was quite intrigued as I started this book, coming from a theological and philosophical background and a interest in some thinkers such as Paul Tillich, who emphasize the symbolic and mythological nature of the Christian religion, I was interested to see how that might compare to Campbell's own assertions. To start out his description of the monomyth, he states that throughout history in the world, human myths have been ever-present, always there. And I will say one issue I found quite perturbing from this theological and philosophical background was the lack of theoretical clarity or argumentation. The main mechanics of how he attempts to justify his position is to make assertions and go on to give a multitude of anecdotes that peripherally relate to that assertion. And sometimes the anecdotes at least by my reading, don't necessarily apply 100% to 
the assertions. So often his points are obfuscated by the multitude of these loosely connected examples. Nevertheless, one of the very important things that he starts with is connecting the ancient and modern religious symbols and mythology to modern psychology. He asserts that the religious symbols of the past sprang out of the unconscious. They were not fabricated, but rather were drawn from the wells of the unconscious and therefore spoke to the multitude. Not necessarily everyone, as religions tend to be localized and informed by those local, cultural, historical, natural influences, hence the disparity and differences of religion throughout the world. But these religious ideas were deep down inside of humanity, and when they came to be, they stuck around due to their correspondence to an underlying myth that does hold true, hence the monomyth. Mono in the sense of one, therefore asserting that all mythology relates to an underlying myth that is absolute. Now, Campbell connects the symbols of the past and religion to psychoanalysis, and I'm quoting now, Most remarkable of all, however, are the revelations that have emerged from the mental clinic. The bold and truly epoch-making writings of the psychoanalysts are indispensable to the student of mythology, for whatever may be thought of the detailed and sometimes contradictory interpretations of specific cases and problems, Freud, Jung, and their followers have demonstrated irrefutably that the logic, the heroes, and the deeds of myth survive into modern times. End quote. Directly from there, he connects what he sees as a modern crisis, a mythological crisis, and I quote again, in the absence of an effective general mythology, each of us has his private, unrecognized, rudimentary, yet secretly potent pantheon of dream. And then we see his literary predilection emerge. The latest incarnation of Oedipus, the continued romance of Beauty and the Beast, stand this afternoon on the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, waiting for the traffic light to change. End quote. So getting down to brass tacks, Campbell thinks that religious mythology corresponds to a universal or monomyth, if you will, derived from the human psyche. And not consciously, but unconsciously. Campbell sees an importance in religions, but he doesn't think that they are something that need to be advocated for, but rather that their mythological truths need to be uncovered for the modern person to help aid us in understanding what it means to be human as they were drawn out of the well of human psychology and highly developed. To support this, I want to quote again from The Hero's Journey, where he says, Whenever the poetry of myth is interpreted as biography, history, or science, it is killed. The living images become only remote facts of a distant time or sky. Furthermore, it is never difficult to demonstrate that as science and history, mythology is absurd. When civilization begins to reinterpret its mythology in this way, the life goes out of it. Temples become museums and the link between the two perspectives is dissolved. Such a blight has certainly descended on the Bible and on a great part of the Christian cult. To bring the images back to life, one has to seek not interesting applications to modern affairs, 
but illuminating hints from the inspired past. When these are found, vast areas of half-dead iconography disclose again their permanent human meaning. Then he goes on to talk about some of these meanings in various religions. One can see some parallels between First Communion, maybe, and Bar Mitzvahs, or baptism within some conservative Christian denominations. I should note that the bulk of this book is Campbell tracking different elements of the hero's journey, and the hero being the figure who, after this journey, provides or breathes new life into a society. Relating this back to Star Wars, you have Luke who departs on this journey with Obi-Wan, also one of those figures in this hero's journey is someone who guides the hero, maybe like an Obi-Wan. Maybe initiation would be initiation into the ways of the Force and going to Dagobah and all this stuff. Here I'm revealing my 14-year-old nerdy side. But Luke, at the end, has completed his journey of the hero and has become a full Jedi and now is in a position to revitalize the Jedi Order. I don't know that the new Star Wars were in keeping with this psychological hero's journey of Campbell. I will say just as a side criticism that I found when I was reading this was just the kind of messy nature of it. It starts kind of strong with this idea of the monomyth, and I was actually quite excited to see how Campbell would lay out this hero's journey, but a lot of it resorted to assertions that had convoluted anecdotes, sometimes almost seemingly not necessarily contradictory, but unrelated that I didn't think were really proving his point. So it kind of it lacks persuasiveness due to that. And I don't even know that more anecdotes or more precise anecdotes would have necessarily improved it. I would have rather seen a clear delineation of what he was talking about and then maybe an example in various footnotes or appendices where one could reference these stories to see how they overlap. But this did, it did not have that. So it came across more of him exemplifying his very in-depth knowledge of folklore and myths and religion from around the globe and throughout history, but did not necessarily drive home the point that he was trying to make as something so universal and essential that this was. Even in the beginning, I believe he mentions that some might find counterexamples to what he was saying, but overall, when you took his ideas or reading into account, you would see this throughout all religious and mythological literature. But I personally did not find that to be the case. I personally found his own examples to be somewhat convoluted. And I know something something trying to tie together myths that are informed by the, the human psyche and the different historically contingent elements to each society is going to be messy. But that's why I would have preferred, even if not fewer anecdotes, rather a clear theoretical argument, or at least a clear argument for what he was really trying to say. In the bulk of the book, he presents it as if he is drawing from these sources in order to form the idea of the hero's journey, rather than having the idea and using those historical points to defend it. But then in the second part, which is smaller, it seems that he is 
advancing an idea of the universality of mythology and what is underneath the human psyche and uses anecdotes to argue for that. Now, I don't know that it's necessarily much more theoretically persuasive or robust as it still is based on assertions, but it tends to take the approach of presenting us with an idea of the world and the human construct of meaning. The second part is called the Cosmogonic Cycle. And to pick out another section that demonstrates his attempt to purvey an entire ultimate view of the world, I will read another quote. And so, to grasp the full value of the mythological figures that have come down to us, we must understand that they are not only symptoms of the unconscious, as indeed are all human thoughts and acts, but also controlled and intended statements of certain spiritual principles, which have remained as constant throughout the course of human history as the form and nervous structure of the human physique itself. Briefly formulated, the universal doctrine teaches that all the visible structures of the world, all things and beings, are the effects of a ubiquitous power out of which they rise, which supports and fills them during the period of their manifestation, and back into which they must ultimately dissolve. This is the power known to science as energy, to the Melanesians as mana, to the Sioux Indians as Wakanda, the Hindu as Sakti, and the Christians as the power of God. Its manifestation in the psyche is termed, by the psychoanalysis, libido and its manifestation in the cosmos is the structure and flux of the universe itself. End quote from page 221. Here we see the universal nature of Campbell's view of reality, and it's quite intense for him to believe that certain powers, such as the Christian idea of God being akin to that of the psychoanalysis libido, or what science knows as energy. Now, in regards to religion, Campbell believes that these were useful and powerful things that brought about group identity and meaning and carried us through not some broken dreamlike mythology that must be explained through Jungian or Freudian psychoanalysis, but they were more profound than that and more refined, therefore more closely related to that ultimate but via the rise of modern science and the secular state, not only has the myth of the nation continued to disintegrate and be less apt at providing meaning, so too the larger world religions, quote, The universal triumph of the secular state has thrown all religious organizations into such a definitely secondary and finally ineffectual position that religious pantomime is hardly more today than a sanctimonious exercise for Sunday morning whereas business, ethics, and patriotism stand for the remainder of the week. Such a monkey holiness is not what the functioning world requires. Rather, a transmutation of the whole social order is necessary, so that through every detail and act of secular life, the vitalizing image of the universal God-man, who is actually imminent and effective in all of us, may be somehow made known to consciousness. And that's quite the damning view of our current social institutions. And this is right towards the end where he envisions new mythologies that might draw from the past, but are ultimately new symbols and mythologies that must be found in the modern world to continue that revitalization and give life to societies while conceding that they will be localized, that there are different traditions and cultures wherein the symbols will take different forms. I think that this is an interesting take and critique 
of the modern world. It is not a novelty for a thinker in the 20th century to see the modern world as both groundbreaking in its scientific achievements, while concurrently consisting of a deep privation of that which gives the individual meaning. Here I want to pivot and talk about two examples of people who saw a similar fragmentation or privation of the spiritual and sought to overcome that. One example of this is new to me, and it's the idea of God building, which apparently was promoted by a Marxist named Anatoly Lunacharsky. And some of this, I will say, I am pulling from primarily online sources and even Wikipedia because it's very difficult to find any of his things translated into either English or German. There are small amounts, but not really the bulk of of his literature on God-building, which I think is unfortunate. And essentially, he thought that religious ritual was essential to creating a cohesive whole in society. This was in contrast to the pervasive atheism in a lot of Marxist thought. He was similar to Campbell in seeing the need of society to have these larger overarching myths that were then manifest in in rituals. And he was okay with creating this. He wanted to do something that was compatible with science and would promote Marxism and the rule of the proletariat. And it's just an interesting take. And he wasn't, at least from what I've gathered, he wasn't opposed to aligning with religions, probably the Orthodox Church in Russia or maybe in a Western context with the Catholic Church or the Evangelical Church. But he wouldn't want to give society over to that as it would be based too much in supernatural beliefs, but at the same time might try to work with them and even alter them to be more open to what he saw as the legitimacy of modern science and also however they might promote more freedom and democracy among the working classes. And this is in some ways what Campbell seems to be okay with. Campbell might couch it in more flowery language and also emphasize that this must arise spontaneously more than analytically and consciously. Notwithstanding, it does seem that this would be one kind of answer to what Campbell was thinking about, despite the fact that this was much earlier than Campbell and he may have not been familiar with. Another example is a very interesting figure, a Protestant thinker named Rosenstock Hussey, and a lot of his stuff is written in English, actually. He ended out leaving Germany for the States prior to the Second World War and had a lot of interesting ideas that were in many ways very Christian. I mean, he was openly a Protestant, but seemed to have a very imminent idea of the church. But the point I want to emphasize here is that Rosenstock, and I'll put his uh, his name because it's kind of not so familiar to many English speakers in the description here of this podcast. The important point here, not going into Rosenstock, which I might talk about at, at f- further length sometime in the future, but he has some interesting commentary about modernity in regards to the need for rhythm. He saw in the past the Christian calendar, for instance, provided a certain rhythm to the year. You had the different Christian festivals, this whole religious structure, the religious holidays added what he would see as kind of a rhythm to life. Think of it as a syncopated drum beat that's catchy, where modern life 
was more mechanical, like just the pounding of metal against metal that doesn't have any syncopation to it. But with societal change, Rosenstock thought that the church and society needed to respond to this. For instance, he thought about the commute. So he was even thinking in terms of, okay, now we have just this common thing called the commute that people have to and from work. Is there something within the commute that might provide spiritual benefit? Not that he was promoting communion, but saying there is this fact that we have this kind of dead time between going to work and from work that is often not well utilized. Is there a way that we can think about this time where we might actually provide spiritual benefit to ourselves in this dead time that is not used, but is part of the day-to-day life of the modern individual? I believe he also proposed things like social service where people after graduation from high school would have to serve a certain time, maybe a year or so, in certain social capacities, also to promote a larger social consciousness and a workforce that could help in some of the areas that might need help. For instance, maybe people spend that year in an old folks home helping there and also the benefit that that would have, which would promote social consciousness of things that are not necessarily that profitable, but are very important for society, care for the young, care for the old. So that would provide a certain amount of labor in those fields that is needed. And at the same time, be very educational and provide the potential worker or student with experiences that they would not get necessarily otherwise in whatever chosen profession they would then take. This is a way of thinking about the situation that we live in in a modern society and trying to derive ways in which we can have a larger social consciousness and promote social values that would strengthen society. So essentially, I am going to wrap up here. Personally, I think Campbell leaves much to be desired. I had higher expectations, to be honest, just due to its popularity and the way it starts off a little bit stronger than it then turns out to be, in my opinion. But it does provide certain food for thought Regardless of one's position, even if one is devoutly religious, I think that we can still realize that there are ways in which society might think about organizing itself in different ways than we than it is now. So there you go. I will put all those links in description of this podcast in case anybody has further interest in looking that stuff up. Take care.